You're listening to Splendid Chaps, recorded live at Melbourne City Library as part of their Doctor Who Festival on the 19th of November, 2013. It's time for Splendid Chaps, the podcast that goes forward in all its beliefs. Please welcome your hosts, Ben McKenzie and John Richards. Chaps coming to you today from the City Library. Ooh, in exciting Flinders Lane. <laughs> this is different to most of our library gigs in that this library has windows. Yeah. And we're above the ground. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a treat for us, actually. <laughs> Let out of the bunker, finally. This is part of the excellent Doctor Who Festival they've been running at the City Library. There's so much amazing stuff on. There's competitions. Uh, there's a TARDIS downstairs. Or is it upstairs? I, I didn't actually spot it on the way in. Perhaps it's an invisible It's in mode. East Melbourne. It's in a it's different in... library. <laughs> eh, wibbly wobbly. Mm, yes, well done. Well done. <laughs> well played, TARDIS. Well played. This is a very special show. It's not part of the 11 shows that have been... <laughs> yeah, fine, I know, yes. Yeah. It's not part of the 11 shows that have been the last 20 shows that we've done. <laughs> This is another bonus show uh, in which we're looking at companions. And speaking of companions, uh, yes. we've all made, a, we've all made a, a, what I like to call a sort of half-assed cosplay attempt tonight. Um, <laughs> I think it's quite a good cosplay let's, attempt. Let's start, let's start, actually, let's start with you, Pen. Who, who, who are you wearing? I'm, um, I'm wearing Mr. Pond. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I had a dilemma. Uh, when you're ginger, your cosplay options are quite limited. Um, Amen. So, so you have to decide if you're just going to throw that out the window or not. And so I, I've come as, as Rory, um, ginger beardy Rory, of course. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I've got, I've got the, for the, for the listeners uh, in our Extremely Visual <laughs> podcast, uh, I'm wearing a red check shirt and a sort of sleeveless jackety number. Which... I'm sorry, I've never seen you look that butch. I know. That is... <laughs> No, how do you? No, uh, I ask. And then uh, we move on to John after a comment like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, Who I, are you wearing, well, darling? As, as a tribute, I've come as Ian and Barbara. <laughs> so, um, so this is good because because my my main ginger option was to come as Turlow, and if I just turned up wearing a school tie, I would have looked almost exactly the same, except well, without uh, without the barbrigan. A bit dodgy. I am wearing the barbrigan. This is uh, I wore this for, for a spoken word piece about barbrigan, the barbrigan, which I love very much. Uh, the old school tie. I've tried to be as monochrome as I possibly could as well, because because of course back in in those days everything was black and white, um, and I think I, I look kind of uncannily like Barbara. <laughs> Yeah, see, I don't know, John, because even in your own spoken word piece, you talked about that there's two iconic things that Barbara has. There's yeah. the cardigan, yeah. Yeah, and there's that. also the hair. Well, I've and got you the hair. Do not... No, I've got the hair. Yeah, what? it's in this bag. Hang on. Whoa. <laughs> what? You've got, you've got Jacqueline Hill's hair in yeah. a bag? Yeah, I bought it on eBay. It cost a fortune. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know... I thought this when you wore it last time, but I think it again now. It's strangely alluring. It, it is. It, it really is. works for you somehow. <laughs> actually, Joe, the most alarming thing is if, if I grow my hair, it actually just looks like this. It does look. <laughs> this is pretty much what my hair looked like in my 20s. <laughs> if you just put the cure on and we all dance. <laughs> now I'm just imagining Barbara going to a cure concert. 
that's a TARDIS adventure that someone will have to write fanfic writers in the crowd. Oh, and, and what have you come as tonight, Petra? Well, I just thought we could go kill Hitler. It's Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. You weren't really... I can't believe an audience were hesitant about whether to applaud the idea of killing Hitler. It's, it's a controversial The answer is theory. yes. Just a hint. We're going back in time to episode six, which was about clothes, really, aren't we? But that's fine. Clothes are a big part. Clothes maketh the man or woman or indeed Time Lord. But today we're going to talk about a whole bunch of people who are not Time Lords. Well, nearly all of them aren't. Because today is, of course, about the other splendid chaps, the companions. So, Petra, in order to talk about the companions, we're going to need some guests. Can you introduce them for us? I sure can, then. Our first splendid chap is a digital media expert, a freelance writer and audio producer, reformed TV blogger for Screen Media, sometime radio announcer on 3RRRFM, reality TV junkie and lover of forest animals. She's got a couple of degrees in professional writing and editing and media journalism, can talk about herself in the third person for the purposes of writing bios... And she's good fun at parties, so you should invite her to yours. Our other splendid chap is a graduate of the Australian Film, Television and Radio School, whose work includes short films, commercials, webisodes, and as a director on Winners and Losers, and as a director, writer and story editor on Neighbours, his short films have been seen at festivals around the world. He also writes comics and co-hosts the podcast Non-Canonical. One of them has replaced John on the other podcast he used to co-host, while the other one once married his ex-girlfriend to Harold Bishop. There, Marion Blythe and Lucas Testro. So welcome to the show. We like, we like to start by asking our guests, you know, how they got into the world of Doctor Who. And Marion, I want to start with you because I know that you came in in, a, in an unusual way. Um, so, first of all, I'm really happy to be here. I really wanted to... I really wanted to do sex with David Tennant. Sorry, have sex with... Sorry. What was the question? Um, yeah, no, I, I, um, I stumbled across uh, the Paul McGann film or telemovie, whatever it is, uh, on TV, and I wasn't allowed to watch TV when I was a kid, so I wasn't a kid, I was, like, 16... But, um, yeah, I stumbled across it when nobody was home and I was watching secret TV and, um, and just became obsessed with it, like really obsessed with it because I hadn't really seen anything like that was grown up and sci-fi. I'd seen like cartoons and stuff and whatever. So, yeah, the idea of time travel and, and I fell in love with him and I thought he was really handsome and... I hated Grace and... <laughs> oh, but, why, but, but why this was a one-off hate... telly movie, though, so how did you get obsessed? What were you obsessed with? I went to the library and found, like, Doctor Who books and stuff. Oh, and yeah, yeah. I was, like, fixated on it. And then when I saw that um, the Doctor Who show was coming back and I was a bit more grown up and stuff and I thought... Yeah, I'm down for that. <laughs> but Paul McGann was your doctor. I think that's really sweet. Yeah, and I still like that little mini webisode or whatever. I'm still hot for him. Yeah. <laughs> He's st- he looked really sexy. He's still, still sexy. got it. He's yeah. still got it. So, Lucas, would you do Paul McGann? <laughs> Which version? Are we talking the Miniso version or the earlier, younger version? What about the audio version? Would you do that? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a phone sex, maybe. Phone sex purely with the audio version. <laughs> So, so, Lucas, how did you get into Doctor Who? Um, well, my earliest memory of Doctor Who really was just the show with the weird blue time tunnel opening credits that freaked me out too much to actually watch it. And then I think I had a sort of odd entry to it because I think my first thing I actually watched was The Five Doctors. 
So I watched that and around about the same time in the school library found the books and I remember reading uh, The Time Warrior as my first one. So, like, my introduction to Doctor Who was, the you know, I don't really have a favourite Doctor because the, the whole notion of there being, you know, a bazillion Doctors was my first entry to it, which sort of blew my mind. I think that was one of the things I loved most about it to start with. Yeah. But, of course, we are here to talk about the companions, not to talk about Paul McCann. Um, <laughs> and I believe that, Petra, you have some information about companions for us. Back in 1963, a new adventure serial began in which school teachers Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright attempted to unravel the mystery of a bizarre student, Susan Foreman. Their investigations led to a life-threatening series of adventures thanks to the machinations of the Doctor, an inscrutable old man who electrocutes them before kidnapping them in his time machine to keep his presence on Earth a secret. Fifty years later, he's the greatest hero in all of space and time. Clearly, he had some help. The most famous examples of literary sidekicks include Sanjo Panza, John Watson, Samwise Gamgee and Robin the Boy Wonder. Though the first recorded sidekick is probably Enkidu, companion and friend to Gilgamesh. In the Mesopotamian epic, Enkidu is formed from clay by the gods and sent to test King Gilgamesh and teach him humility. But after wrestling with each other, they become close friends. Hmm. <laughs> Gilgamesh is so distraught over Enkidu's death that he mourns over his body for six days and seven nights, not allowing him to be buried until a maggot fell out of his nose. That's true friendship right there. Or a really disturbing Love Is cartoon. <laughs> but when Doctor Who began, it didn't have companions as we know them, or even sidekicks. In fact, the title character was hardly a hero at all in the conventional sense. The Doctor was a mystery, a wanderer in the fourth dimension whose origins and motives were a secret never to be revealed. In C.E. Weber's March 1963 outline for a new science fiction program, he specifically listed the character types he wanted as the handsome young hero, first character. The handsome, well-dressed heroine, aged about 30, second character. And the mature man, 35 to 40, with some character twist, third character. Even in the later, more famous outline written by Weber and Sidney Newman listed the ordinary people to whom extraordinary things happen. Originally named Biddy, Lola and Cliff, before the mysterious Doctor Who. So Susan, Barbara and Ian were never conceived as second string characters and they certainly never behaved like them. By the end of its second season, Doctor Who had revised the TARDIS crew down to three. The Doctor now travelled with Vicky and Stephen, who were both stranded astronauts from the future, setting the early precedent that the Doctor didn't only travel with humans from contemporary Earth. This set up the Doctor being accompanied by an adventurous and often imperiled young woman and a more traditionally heroic young man continued throughout the 60s, with the Doctor's new friends coming as often from the past or future as from the present. In 1970, the new Doctor was forced to leave his friends behind. He also became younger and more physical, able to fill the action hero role on his own, despite being surrounded by military men. The employment of Liz Shaw marked the first time the Doctor was truly assisted by a younger woman and the idea of the Doctor Who girl was cemented by Joe Grant, especially when the two left Earth on occasional missions for the Time Lords. Joe was enthusiastic, possessed of unusual but often useful skills and complimented the Doctor, compensating for those areas in which he struggled. This lineup, the Doctor and a single female assistant, lasted through the 1970s with only K9 breaking the mould. 
In the early 1980s, the TARDIS crew briefly grew again, allowing for more complex interactions between the regular cast and leading some fans to deride the era as neighbours with roundels. But it didn't last long and soon we were back to one Doctor, one Doctor Who girl. The new series, built as it was on folk memories of the old, has followed suit, with extra TARDIS travellers usually tagging along for an episode or two, with the exceptions of Rory and River Song. As for the term companion, it was almost never used on screen in the classic series, at least by the Doctor. It is more often used by others, the first time by the Daleks. Generally, the Doctor only used it when historical figures or lofty space people used the term first. The first time he refers to his fellow travellers as companions in the Seeds of Death, when he says, yes, I have considerable experience in space travel and so have my two companions. The third Doctor occasionally referred to Joe and Sarah as his assistants, though they just as often used that term to refer to themselves. And Tom Baker almost never used either word. Companion became slightly more frequently used during the 1980s after it had become entrenched as a bit of behind-the-scenes and fanish terminology. But even now, the Doctor mostly refers to the people with whom he travels as simply friends. Well, either that or Chesterfield, imbecile, faint-hearted girl, stupid ape or the idiot. I did want to say, because you, you, you say in that piece that uh, throughout the 70s it was seen as being the, you know, the sort of one doctor, one girl, but of course uh, the imbecile is Harry Sullivan, yes. who, who was there for a year. Uh, again, because they thought the doctor might be an older actor and would need the, the heroic young lead yeah. to so do he the was, punching. He was basically there to, to be the one that they picked on the most. Kind of like Rory, unfortunately. He was the Rory of the 70s. Yeah. He was, yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things that there's often referred to the companion, there's, there's talk of it being a viewpoint character, which is, you know, a, a sort of jargony term for, for a character you're supposed to, as the audience, be able to read yourself into. You, Lucas, are a, a television director. What do you feel about the role of the companion? Is it a viewpoint character, or is the Doctor the viewpoint character? Uh, it's interesting. I was thinking about this the other day, because I think it changes. When it started, the companion's very much the viewpoint character. Um, uh, you know, there are people from the age in which the show was being broadcast. Uh, and then even when, uh, as you were saying before, about, like, Stephen's theoretically an astronaut from the future, but the way that actually played in reality, they just played as normal people who were, you know, had the same interests and fears and approach to the world as, as someone would at home watching. But I think the interesting thing is you watch over time as the Doctor gets sort of more known and knowable and more human, sort of moving into Patrick Troughton's period, the companions start to get become more of the alien character. Uh, characters with, with, you know, Jamie comes from, a, you know, has a very different approach to the things that they're encountering than the people would at home. And same with, you know, Zoe and, and Victoria. And it's the Doctor who's more of the sort of access character. And I think that's a dynamic that continues over time that, you know, it happens again with, you know, Tom Baker becomes sort of mega popular and we shift from Sarah into Leela, who's, you know, possibly the most extreme case of that, who has a very alien view. And, you know, that continues on right through until we get to maybe like Colin Baker coming and Perry's the first of a sort of quite down to earth. There's nothing particularly out there about her, just as we're about to get a super unstable you know, Doctor Who we're not going to really know again. 
and you know, and then it happens again when we get Ace as we're moving into the Dark Doctor, who's supposed to be mysterious. And it happens again then in the new series where we start with Rose, who's the shop girl, and like the first episode's named after this character. She is the viewpoint character. Fast forward eight years, and now the companions are sort of explicitly there to be the source of mystery as the Doctors become the person we relate to and know. So these aren't sidekicks so much as, as a balance in a way. They're definitely a balance. I think, I think the companion's essential to the show. It's really the thing, I think, because um, they're not really needed there so much to be the what is this doctor because any sort of supporting character in any episode could take the place of that. They're, I think they're mostly there for a more emotional um, access character to access the fear that they want the audience to, to feel. And I think they're essential to the show because it really distinct, makes it something like without the companion, it's effectively like the Night Stalker. And if you don't want it to be that, if you want it to be for family and kids, you need the companions who are going to be the people that they attach to and identify who show the fear so that they can feel the fear while the doctor's over here as a security blanket that says it's okay to be scared because nothing bad's actually going to happen to you. And you need the two of them to play to that family audience, which the show appeals to. One of the things we have seen since the show came back is that they've all been contemporary Earth characters. I, I find it hard to imagine them now putting a historical character. Wasn't, um, was Kylie Minogue's Astrid an alien or was Technically, she... Technically, yeah. yeah. Was she a companion? Do we count... Oh, this is, this is your thing, isn't it? You're, you're big on the, what counts as a companion and what doesn't. Well, no, I think that's... A, no, I'm not big on that. I think... I think... No, that's all you talk about. <laughs> it's the only thing it's you ever thing. talk about. It's your thing. <laughs> Actually, I believe my words were, let's not talk about that too much because people have been arguing about it for 30 years. <laughs> But I will point out, you spent some time making a, a graph. You, you actually made a... <laughs> did tell, make. tell the people what you did, Ben. So, <laughs> I wanted to make sure that the things that I wrote in that introduction that Petra read were accurate. And I couldn't find anywhere... Like, everybody talks about, oh, are they companions or are they not? Does the doctor call them that? Do they not? I couldn't find anywhere any evidence about that. So, I went through the script for every episode and story and to see who says companion and who yeah, says assistant. Right. And, um, and what did you do with that information, Ben? I put it into a spreadsheet. And, uh, <laughs> I, I might make my source material available. Um, <laughs> on the website, uh, if people really want. No, but um, the thing that I found is that... Um, it's very interesting because they, they hardly ever say companion. Like there's, there's loads of other people in Doctor Who who call them companions, but they're just using it in the sense people that you travel with because they use it almost as often when they're talking to the companions to refer to the Doctor. They're always like, oh, your companion is missing. Where is he? Um, and, uh, and he almost never says it. In fact, there's only, in all of Doctor Who, there's only 15 stories where the Doctor refers to somebody as a companion. But we picked this word up somehow. Like, it just became the official word sometime around the 19, early 1980s um, when I think John Nathan Turner started using it in documents and uh, the fans sort of picked it up. And it's, it's part of that really weird era when... Doctor Who became very communicative like the, the production team started talking to fan magazines and everything and you could find out all what they were thinking in the, in the production office or at least what they wanted to let you know they were thinking. I feel like to really grasp this information I need a pivot table or something. <laughs> I, I did use a pivot table. Um, uh, the, but the interesting thing is that uh, also they... Even though the word assistant is quite popular in the 70s, he really only uses it for people who actually are his assistants. Like, he describes Joe as his assistant because when Joe turns up, that's how she introduces herself. 
She says, I'm your new assistant. She's got a weird way of assisting. Yeah. Uh, well, no, you know, I think if I had an assistant who could pick locks um, and run that quickly wearing those heels... She does, she, very she does try and blow them all up, though, in the first story. Yeah. I mean, you know, for a first day at work, yeah. I think... She gets away with it, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, but even um, Tom Baker actually says assistant quite a bit, but only for one era. He always refers to Romana, the first Romana, as his assistant. Because, again, that's how she's introduced. The White Guardian says, oh, you need an assistant. Here's one I prepared earlier. <laughs> and and she, up she pops. And so that's how they refer to her throughout that whole time that she's there. What do, you, what do we want from an assistant, though, or a companion? Like, Marion, what do you want from a companion? What do you look for? Because well, you hate Grace, as you've made quite clear. <laughs> I know. Uh, this is really, really bad. Um, but I... Like the, I feel like I'm at an AA meeting. Um, I, I like the romance element. I know it's awful, but um, it's, no, it, there's I'm, no wrong way to be a fan, Marion. I'm modern Doctor Who, so uh, you know, like Rose, the whole Rose storyline was really lovely, and I thought it was, you know, and and it's kind of why I hated Grace was because there was just no sexual tension between her and the Doctor and. It bothered me intensely because, I mean, they were romantic. They were supposed to be romantic and um, they weren't. It was but so you're saying that you, you need sexual tension from, from a, a... So that's going to limit, presumably... Not necessarily, but just um, affection because the Doctor is like, um, you know, his character is weary and old and, and maybe has lost his ability to be emotional, especially... At the end of David Tennant's um, kind of era, you know, he was just very like it's the end kind of thing, and and so seeing that spark, like even when Matt Smith took over, and um, between his Doctor and River Song, uh, I think that the like that little kind of romantic, like she's mad for him, she's you know she'll do anything for him, and I, I really liked that. So, but I don't need loving in a companion. Um, but I was thinking about this uh, and about companion animals and, like, <laughs> because, well, you know, and, and companion animals are kind of like comfort and, and in some cases, guidance and, um, you know, so I guess just a helping hand for the doctor. Like. So you think the doctor actually sees humans like we would look at a like Labrador? Like animals, yeah. Yeah. That, that's something that comes across in some of the novels. They talk about that because he's a time lord. Yeah, no, I, can, I can see that being true. Well, they that's are below him. him. And They're below, like, and he points that out a lot. Like. He says it. There's moments, I think, in, even in the new series, I think Eccleston says stuff like that at some point and in Beast Below, right at the end, when Matt Smith's doctor's having that big explosion, I think he said something similar. It gets back to that, you know, you stupid ape sort of... Mm. I'm, I'm not sure that's from that story, but a similar attitude there. Mm. The interesting thing, going back to your earlier th- thing about whether you could have characters from from the past in the current current day, um, you know, the really interesting thing, particularly in the sort of Moffat era, is that there's been the, the notion of companions become a lot more amorphous and it sort of has become more of the sense of the Doctor's friends. We've got, like, the, the gang that form up and we, then they're mostly populated by historical figures like Nefertiti and that African hunter dude and um, uh, is it Jenny who's the, um, the oh, Victorian... The, the, Jenny and Vastra. Je- Jenny and Vastra. So you get a lot of those characters there. Clara, God, no, I still don't... Does anyone know where Clara, Clara's from? But, you know, I think it's possible. We also still actually... Have, we got that in... Um, I mean, for the whole modern era, because in, in the Russell T. Davies era, of course, you've got the sort of gang as well. You've yep. got Jack and you've got 
you know, Jackie. And there is, a, and again, I think from Buffy, that's sort of that idea of a, a larger family of characters. Yeah. Seems to be quite a common thing now. Yeah, and it is, and it is sort of hearkening. I mean, they always referred to the the Buffy characters as the Scooby Gang because they were like, you know, they're like characters in Scooby Doo. There's like about five of them, and they hang around solving mysteries. Mm-hmm. And that's the Paternoster Gang, which is Madame Vastra and Jenny and Strax. Like they are pretty much explicitly a Scooby Gang of their own. And then it's never quite clear. Why, I mean, I think that's why everybody really wants them to have their own TV series. It's like, why, why do you guys even hang out with the Doctor? Like, haven't you got some interesting shit going on over there? Like, aren't you, like, solving mysteries every other week? What's, yeah. How have you got time for this guy in the box? Like, this is weird. <laughs> uh, so that, I think that's quite interesting. And also the fact that he now just leaves them... I find it really weird. The thing that I've noticed when I was sort of thinking about this that I find really weird about the new series, though, particularly in the Matt Smith's run, is that he just takes them home and leaves them there. And some people have painted that as he really cares about them and doesn't want them to get in danger. So he only comes and takes them on an adventure when he feels like he really needs them to be there. But at the same time, if he can now pilot the TARDIS that accurately and go wherever he wants and visit whoever he wants and he can just leave these guys at home and then come and visit them, and in some cases it's like 10 months between Pond adventures in the TARDIS, why doesn't he go back and visit all those other people that he really cared about and well, who were his it's friends. It's interesting because that was just a change in how television was made, that, you know, in the, the 60s, 70s, even the 80s, it would be expected the Doctor... When you left Doctor Who, you left. That was his thing. The actor leaves, that's fine. They, they, they moved to Queensland, as they used to say in Neighbours. <laughs> you know, like when you're a child and, you, and your cat moves to Queensland. <laughs> yeah, it's really, co- it's really uh, confusing. <laughs> It's, it's, it's really confusing when you grow up only, only a couple of hours south of the Queensland border because oh. then you're just like, can we go visit? And they're like, no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, that thing, of, yeah, and, and you knew that would happen. And, of course, in the new series, they have to give more uh, solid explanations for why he can't do that. So it's like, you know, they're in another universe or they're, you know, they're, they're in, a, in a crack in time you can't ever return to. Mm. And that whole thing of going, yeah, because otherwise it gets a bit awkward to go, well, why don't you just pop back and see Susan? You know, what's... Yeah. What's but I always you? thought that they were that they, that he was doing that in between the episodes, oh. just hanging out with all his old buds. That's nice. Yeah. You're a much better person than we are. <laughs> it's true. I hope that. I really hope that's true. That'd be awesome. I'm sure there's like you know five thousand fanfics based on that idea. Yeah. We do have a bunch of questions. We asked the audience beforehand if they had any comments or questions to make about companions, and we got some excellent ones. Do you want to put them to the panel? Yeah. Now, someone did want us to ask the question that you mentioned, which was, "How do you define who is and who isn't a companion? Do we do we have any clear ideas? Like, do you didn't, think it's important that there are rules, or, or is it? Didn't the rule? I'm not endorsing this rule. Didn't the rule used to be people used to angst about? Did they, they needed to travel in the TARDIS? Yeah, that's that, what that I was thought. what I always understood growing mm. up. That was the thing. I think the main reason that I don't like that one is it leaves out Liz Shaw, and I love Liz Shaw. That's um, fair. Because she never gets to go anywhere. Like, she, she goes inside... Well, she sees the console. She doesn't even get to fly anywhere. But like Marion says, when the Doctor keeps popping back to visit Liz Shaw now, they, they probably go on adventures. That's right. Just off screen. Yeah. Remember when Liz Shaw and the Doctor rode those dinosaurs? That was awesome. <laughs> I just went to my happy place. To... <laughs> That's the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Anytime I'm sad, I'm just going to imagine Liz Shaw riding a dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but is there any other thing? I mean, is it is it? A lot of people have written, and there was a guy actually who wrote in the Guardian um, when Clara came on board the TARDIS that he was really he felt that it became it had become really hard to tell who was supposed to be a companion and who wasn't anymore. And I, I don't know why he was so hung up on it. But do you think it is like much less rigidly defined now? Like because there's so many characters well, to who me come it's, back. It's the equivalent of unit because it's weird to think that. Well, are we not counting? Yeah, I mean, I know that Mike Yates and, and well, I think he got to ride that once. But, um, yeah, there's a thing, you know, Benton to me is, is as pivotal. And it's that thing we're mentioning how people think of Doctor Who as being the Doctor with this single female character. When, I think Tansy Raina Roberts was pointing out, for the majority of the show, that wasn't true. Yeah. Like, the majority of the show, there were, there were more than two people in the TARDIS. Uh, and, in fact, it's, it's these sort of just small pockets in which that was true, but that's what we remember the show as being. Well, that's what, I think that's what the general public remembers the show as yeah. being. We're nerds, we know the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're with me. But I think one of, the big, one of the big differences, Ben, though, is that now, as much as it would be nice to imagine that in the old version of the show, maybe they went off and did this stuff off screen, it's actually built into story now in the modern version that all these other people, like Nefertiti and Hunter 2, they do go and, you know, they refer to adventures that they've had between stories. Yeah. So it makes it... It's a much broader version of who could be a companion now, I think. Yeah. Um, what about the David Tennant episode with the bus and the, that hot girl... And I'm supposed to just, like, throw these things at you guys and you guys tell me who it is. No, that was um, her name, the hot girl. The yeah. hot girl, yeah. We, we and she, she had a crown and it was like she, she was on... She we didn't pay much it. attention to that one. She was, was, she, <laughs> was she a sidekick? Was she a companion? What was she? Well, I think, well, that whole year, like, they're basically like, well, the Doctor's got to have someone. And, and you saw it in the press because in every one of those adventures, uh, except, you know, the end of time when it's Wilf, they do cast, like, a young woman to be his offsider. So you've got Kylie Minogue and then you've got is it Michelle Ryan, I think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in that one, and then whoever's in the other one. And, and you're like, well, it's this really necessary? I don't know. And, um, yeah, whether they, they don't... It, in, those ones are a little bit interesting, particularly uh, the, the modern Mars, uh, the Waters of Mars, because it's a little bit more like old-school Doctor Who in that it's an adventure that other people are having that the Doctor stumbles into. Mm-hmm. But then they still feel the need to, you know, and Adelaide marry does travel up. in the TARDIS. Yeah, they so still feel the need to I, I match think, him up I with think, her. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the point that Lucas was making or not, but let's say it was. I think we should listen to what Lucas is saying and say that we should just open our hearts to a much broader definition and yeah. uh, you know, allow everyone in. I'm on board with that. Yeah. Um, here's one specifically about the most recent companion. So Clara frequently says lines that could have come from Amy's mouth. Do you think Stephen Moffat will ever come up with some new female stereotypes? <laughs> Do you know, when we did the episode about women, which was the nine-slash-women episode, yeah. and everyone kind of just sort of dismissed Stephen Moffat's sort of... Well, I mean, we, his sexism was taken for granted. And a yes, few people left comments on the much. website going, I was annoyed that you didn't actually you know, explain why you thought he was sexist. You're, All those comments were from men. Not a single woman <laughs> said, yeah. Yeah. please explain to me why this is sexist. Yeah. And I, I, think, but I, think, <laughs> I think it was kind of obvious. To yeah, but if, if people are wondering, though, I think, I think that we talked... Someone mentioned this before. Is that now that the Doctor has become sort of a, an audience identification character and the companions are explicitly this puzzle to solve... The thing is also that those characters now, their entire lives revolve around him. They don't have any point to their existence. Like, even Amy, um, her whole life doesn't make sense without the Doctor in it because, the, because of the crack in the wall, because of um, uh, what happens with River Song and her being on the TARDIS and River... Uh, she's the born of the TARDIS, she's born to kill him. You know, she's and it's, for a good man. And yeah. it's really creepy because it's like... 
you you were born in this guy's house and now you're marrying him. Weird. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it is kind of strange. And Clara, obviously, like, has... People complained about her, you know, personality and, and whether or not she was consistent and, and then the fact that she is literally a mystery for the Doctor to solve... Is, is quite a, you know, it's problematic. But that's the biggest problem. Clara is the biggest problem of all of them because at least Amy had a life. Like, yeah. it, it, you know, sexism aside, that you understood there were motivations for what drove her. Yeah. Clara, I think, because she was set up to be a mystery. I thought she was quite good in the, um, in the first, in the Christmas, um, the snowman. But then after that, she doesn't actually have a character at all that I think possibly started from wanting to seem mysterious about it, but she's just a collection of catchphrases and, like, go-getter attitude. But I, I don't think you could ever actually give a list of adjectives about what Clara is. I feel like we're being, like, that she's warming up, like, that maybe it's a transitional thing because, you know... Uh, Hoovians don't really like change. <laughs> it'll, it'll... Ironically. Um, but <laughs> but, um, but uh, Amy was really loved. And um, when Clara, even when the, uh, in, it was in the news that the actress was taking over the, the um, role, people were like, oh, I don't like her. I don't like the look of her. Oh, she's too short. Oh, she's too whatever. And um, so maybe she's, maybe she's. Trust me, Marion. I like the look of her. <laughs> I was, I I was know, I totally her willing yeah, to love her, but she's sort of, it'll be more interesting to see what happens now that the mystery's been solved. Hopefully, they do actually start to give her a proper character. It, I think it was a tricky thing of saved. trying to say, "Here's a mystery that you need to solve by looking through the eyes of the Doctor, who is himself, to a fairly large degree, mm. supposed to be a mystery." So where. There wasn't a lot to latch yeah. on but to. But I think she's just being playful and whatever because, you know, Amy Pond is playful and and that's what the sidekick does. They're playful. I must be that Clara was the first time I sort of noticed that all of Moffat's women were the same. Mm. I hadn't quite spotted that River Song, Amy and Clara are all pretty much the same type and you can swap. Because like a lot of people have said, I think he's written one of the best female characters of all time in Linda Day. Yeah. In, in, you and know, a bunch of others too. Like it's worth mentioning in Press Gang, there's not, Linda Day's not the only woman. There's a mm. whole bunch of female characters and they're all different and they're all interesting. But then you look at his work after that and it's... Yeah, and, it's and it almost feels to be like Clara's the distilled version of it. So she just shows up and goes, sassy, sassy, McFlirt, flirt. Yep. Yeah. And well, he, that's he pretty much it. He, he has a few <laughs> other archetypes that are not women as well. Like he does have the walking id character that you see in Jekyll. Um, Spike is kind of the first iteration of that in, in Press Gang. And then you see it in Coupling. You see it in uh, Joking Apart. Um, the way he writes The Doctor sometimes is very much like that. So it's, yeah, you know, he's got these archetypes that he keeps going back to. Mm-hmm. And um, they don't all come out as companions. That's why I thought Rory was really interesting because he wrote, he wrote a lot of Rory and Rory was not a lot like a lot of other Stephen Moffat characters in many ways. You know, he was a nice guy for starters but he was an actually nice guy. Like he wasn't just doing it um, for nefarious reasons. Rory. He, he was playful as well. And the whole companion animal thing... They're playful, they're fun, and then Rose didn't... She stopped being playful and shit got real. And you get a couple of them together and you breed more of them. But But that is a fair point, though. If you follow on from that idea, you say, well, the Doctor and the TARDIS just like one type of person. He likes puppies and kittens, but not dogs and cats. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the sense. And when they grow up, he just returns them and goes, nah, I want another kitten, thanks. They're not just for Christmas specials. That's pretty good. Um, all right, well, I've got another question, and this kind of harkens back to something you said, because, Marion, you said that 
you know, Amy was universally loved, but actually one of our, our regular uh, audience members, Fraser, says, my daughter is an Amy hater. Do you know why? And is there a cure? <laughs> so why... That's terrible. Does anyone, does anyone up here, Petra, you, you um, put your thumbs up. You don't like Amy? She, yeah, I... Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was the the transition between you know into the new whole showrunner and everything. But the first few episodes of um, Smith and Amy, I don't know. It just seemed cliched to me. Like, oh, we're going to go and deal with vampires, and oh, it just, I, I, it took me a really, really long time to warm to Amy. And even now, I, th- I don't think of Rory as a companion. I think of Rory as the companion's husband. Um, he's just sort of secondary, like, even though I think towards the end of everything, he really does warm up. But because of the way he was introduced to the show, I, I, I just felt that he was not that how, person. How do you think this, and I'm wondering, because Lucas, you might actually have some, some insight into this, again, from the television side of you, but how do we like or dislike characters? I have the same thing. I liked Amy from the start, you know, and I, I still haven't warmed to Clara. Like, I just, and it's just something that just things either seem to do or don't is click it, in. Is it the storylines as well that make you love or hate a character? Like, if you're not on board with the stories themselves? Yeah, I think that's partly it. it I mean, I, I think one of the biggest problems for me with with Amy is the whole nature of the relationship with Rory. I mean, Rory as a character is also, I think, kind of problematic. He started... He's really great in The Eleventh Hour as one sort of character. And there's a whole kind of very murky journey we all sort of forget now before finally they sort of got a read on how to play Rory through the end. Um, And that kind of mid-bit when Rory came back in and was in the TARDIS... That just got felt really weird because he didn't really believe that that was a real relationship. You didn't like Amy because of how she was treating Rory. You didn't understand why they were together or that they loved each other. But the show just kept on saying they love each other, they love each other, and it's like this trying to impose this intellectual thing that you feel in your chest is wrong. When um, the doctor refers to him as Mr. Pond. That's exactly how I felt. It's all about Amy and it wasn't balanced between them. I couldn't see the balance in their relationship. And I guess I saw Amy as a bit demanding. She's a demanding redhead and there's not enough room in this world for demanding redheads. (laughs) It's funny because the way they wrote her out, wrote them out, was completely an example of what was wrong with that relationship through there because all of a sudden there was this, and I can never go back and visit them for all these reasons that we've never talked about before and it's really heartbreaking and here's a lot of music to make you think it's really heartbreaking. You go, this makes no sense whatsoever. Like, you constantly go back. Why can't you go back? You know, but like, it was trying to tell you you should be crying right now and you just knew it made no sense and then it just really irks you. Yeah. But didn't, because uh, Rory, didn't he die, he got killed and then he, he was like a robot or something for a bit? Yeah, uh, and I can't yeah. Amy was a supermodel for an episode. Do you remember yeah, that? Right. Thing? Okay. What happened to that story? When Rory, when Rory died and got like robotized, roboticized. Yeah. That made a robot. Yeah, I didn't like him. I went, I went cold on him. I loved him and then that happened and it was like, well, that's not him, so I don't like him anymore. And, uh, but then he won me back with the Centurion, last Centurion. Yeah, yeah, I know it's so cliched, and you talked about it in the um, in the like when you were talking about gender roles in sex and stuff, about how it was lame that they like made him this, you know, manly man, and then he became more popular. But it works. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm making notes. Um, Yeah, no, I think, and and you know, the other weird thing about Rory is that you never find out about 
much about how they got together or why they're in love until there's that one bit when you sort of have that rapid flashback of them growing up together. And then they tack on that same old tired trope from romantic comedies that he just hung around until finally she said, okay. And that is not the basis for a healthy or excellent relationship. That's just like, oh, I guess we'll get together. What are you talking about? (laughs) Have I been doing it wrong? (laughs) (laughs) It's all falling into place for me now. We'll talk later. later. How to Win a Girl Through Stalking by Lucas (laughs) Testro. Now, um, we've been talking a lot about the new series companions. We've got a question here about the old series ones. Uh, If you could choose one classic series companion to come back for the 50th anniversary special, who would it be and why? It's a good question. uh, Tegan. I so want Tegan back. Any excuse to bring Tegan back would be amazing. I mean, when we're recording this, there's just been a a motion in Parliament to to basically praise the Australians of Doctor Who. And and Janet Fielding, Tegan Javanka, was mentioned in Parliament as being a a great contribution we've made to the world. (laughs) Take that, world. Yeah. I'm but, down with that because I love Tegan. I would love I her to I love that character. I love the fact she's a character who's willing to stand up to him and character points out when he is wrong and, and especially in that period a character who's just willing to go you know and the thing is I think people overstate the bullshitness. I think she's also quite fun and charming but and she's willing to facing too. Yeah. Like when she thinks she's gotten home in the visitation she gives Nissa a big hug and says I know I haven't always been the best companion. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's her exact words and then, and then finds out she's well, not going she also home. has that great line in Francios where, where everything's gone horribly wrong she says oh I'm just a mouth on legs. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is actually Janet Fielding's Twitter handle. It's Mouth on Legs. See, both character and actor have a brilliant sense they of humor. They do. So, yes, yeah, so I, I think... And I would love to see Tegan back in the show. I think she'd be a really interesting character. Good choice. What about I'd love to see Ian back. I mean, William Russell's still a great actor. He does the... I don't know if anyone listens to the Companion Chronicles that Big Finish do, but he does a few of them, and they're always awesome. But I think it would just be so cool, like, goes back to the, the start of the show... And it, but it started with the old doctor and the young man, and then it's now it would be it would have been the reverse with the young doctor and an old Ian. I think that, that would, would be really, really cool. It? Yeah, Matt Smith and, and Ian would yeah. be. That would have been amazing. I think Matt Smith and Jamie, because oh. Troughton and Jamie had a really delicious kind of relationship. Uh, well, I think friendship. Bro- bromance is the word. You're bromance. For. Yeah. Did they have bromance back then? But yeah, no, I, think Jamie, I, I think they had flat out romance. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we've said this before, but they were very touchy-feely. There's a lot of touching. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of hand-holding. It's, it's, it's so cute. It's wonderful. And I, but I always... I mean, I said this when we were doing the second Doctor episode, but it feels to me like they are behaving like kids. They're like little mm. kids who are best friends and they don't have those boundaries that we build up when we become older and forget that it's okay to touch other people. And I mean, obviously, with their permission. But, um, and, and not in the baby's but, you know, when, you, when you're little kids and you are close, like you don't have those barriers that that are imposed on you by society and culture that tell you it's not okay to behave like this. It means different things now. And that, for me, was they always had that chartful playfulness. And Matt Smith is so good with kids. He'd be great. Mm. It would have been great with that. And it totally fits. The other thing about Second Doctor and Jamie was you were never entirely sure who was protecting who because like, yeah. one's theoretically smart and one's theoretically stronger, but at a moment it all spins on the head. So they're always clutching to get behind <laughs> one another or in front of one another. That's pretty good. Marion, who would you like to see come back? Okay, so I don't feel like I'm equipped to answer this question because I've only seen from the old series, like, episodes here and there. So I'll 50-50 or phone a friend, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But I have seen some Tegan. I did like Tegan. Yeah, I think she's highly underrated. I also really like Nissa. I think Nissa's kind of uh, is cool. I know you're not a fan. That's crazy talk. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think she'd be my pick for who to come back. I, I would like to see um, Ace 
because she's my mm-hmm. she's my favorite of the TV companions. I think she's she's just you know, and it'd be wonderful to see what became of her because she does go through that whole growing up with the doctor. Like he's he's sort of coaching her, he's helping her get over her hang-ups. Uh, he's teaching her about the world and to be an adventurer. There's that whole idea that never got made on TV where supposedly he was training her up to actually go to Gallifrey and become a Time Lord, which I don't, I don't think you would need to go that far, but I'd love to see, you know, a modern series take on this, this woman and who mm. she's become and what she does now. And also, because Sophie Aldred's still awesome. Um, like she does the Companions stuff as well and is a great actor. I'd love to see her back While in While we're show. talking about the 80s and classic Companions, I just want to share that, a bit of research that I was doing that came up with, which was that um, in 86, when Doctor Who was in trouble... Uh, they and when the hiatus happened, they went back to Sidney Newman, who was, of course, the, the sort of brain behind the idea of Doctor Who, the man who, who first came up with it. And they asked Sidney Newman what he would want to do with the show. And curiously, he said they should fire Colin Baker, get Patrick Troughton back in for a year or two, then replace him with a woman, go for a female doctor, which is kind of interesting. But he actually had an idea for what the two new companions would be. And I just wanted to bring this in because it's a fascinating view into... Into madness. Um, this is uh, basically the, the two companions should be a homesick girl of twelve wearing John Lennon type Dickensian spectacles because she's stylish. On Earth, she plays a trumpet in the school orchestra. Sometimes, when nervous, she plays it badly, and other times, gives a virtuoso performance. It's the one possession she values most. Sometimes, it gets her into trouble when it's taken from her. Her high notes can smash glass, and sometimes, it signals the advance to battle or retreat from danger. Sometimes, it irritates Doctor Who when he's trying to think. Hush, child, you're adulpating me. Wait, are you sure you're not reading something from Narnia? <laughs> It also irritates, and this is the second companion, her yobbo, over-self-confident brother of 18, who with his aerosol can graffitis the heavens. He's headstrong, often thinks his little sister a pest, but is also protective of her, knowing that if any harm befalls her, his parents would kill him when, oh yes, when, they were to get back to Earth. Clearly he thinks Doctor Who is way past it. Now, this oh, was wow. Sidney Newman's idea for how to save the show. <laughs> you know, the phrase that leaps to mind when listening to that is, right on. <laughs> Daddy-o. Yeah, that's right. They paid it's him so a... extraordinarily detailed, like the notes well, of the... Well, they, they asked him for... They paid him £1,000 to wow. give them a, a breakdown of how to save the show. Well, he and, gave them their money's worth. And then, yeah, and then he had a meeting with... with um, oh, I want to say Michael Powell, but I couldn't make that up. Um, it's someone Powell. He was the head of, of drama at the BBC at the time, and apparently they did not get on. So, um, but it's just that thing is going... Even in the 60s, that would have been like a crazy old-fashioned kids' show. Exactly how in the 80s that would have saved anything, I find. Although I do think we should start using the term you're adulpating me more often than we currently do. It's a pretty good word. Pretty good word. Um, all right, here's, uh, here's another question. Is there a companion that you either love to hate or have dramatically changed your feelings about uh, after your first or tenth viewing of their tenure? I'm going to say, um, and, and this will come no surprises to you, I know, but uh, Barbara Wright is the one that basically... Really? I mean, this whole Spinner Chaps thing, I kind of found... I remember, yeah, I'd seen quite a lot of the black and white stuff, but I wasn't a huge fan of it. And it was funny re-watching it for Spinner Chaps. I have such respect now for, yeah. for both the Hartnell and the Troughton eras, and so many of the actors in there. Not Victoria, clearly, but so many of the actors in there are really good. And, um, and I think particularly Barbara, watching it now, she's such a contemporary actor, and it feels like 
like everyone else is doing, I am doing acting now. It's 1963. I will now do my line as it's 1963. And then she does some real acting, and you go, Oh, Barbara, that's that's a shock. <laughs> yeah. I think I think again you could imagine her having adventures on her own. Like well, if she went back when she goes back to nine sixty five, Ian's probably making the tea at home and she's like finding aliens in the school cupboard and going, hmm, better sort these guys out. Well there's the thing is I was doing research into her for the, the event we did the other day and discovering that she gets the first line of dialogue in Doctor Who, she's the first regular on camera, she is the first person to see a Dalek, which she sees an episode before we do. We're gonna have to do a sequel podcast called Splendid Babs, aren't we? Yeah, oh absolutely. <laughs> she's just awesome. And also, if you think about it, Barbara is most likely the character most like Verity Lambert, who was the first producer. And it kind of thinks, well, that would make sense if you're going, no, I'm going to protect that character. Mm. You know, she's not going to be screaming and falling over stuff. She's going to be a proper adult who solves things. And And, and she's the archetype that they get rid of at the first opportunity. Because when when they leave, they end up with Stephen and Vicky, who is basically filling the uh, the, uh, Ian and uh, Susan roles. And we really only see the Barbara type twice more in the show, which is is Liz. Um, And then we see in Donna. Donna Noble is clearly in the Barbara. Arguably, Tegan, I think, also fills a similar niche because she's the oldest of the companions. And and when you watch something like Black Orchid, when there's all three of them doing stuff together, Tegan does take a sort of... Charge, she, you know, she's in charge. She like watches over Nissa and Adric and makes sure they don't, you know, drink alcohol and stuff like that. And you're like, <laughs> you're a responsible adult, <laughs> a responsible adult Australian. <laughs> so they can't drink until they're 18, and then they can drink a lot. <laughs> I could just see them if they if they'd all stuck together until they were older, they would have been going on benders. It would have been amazing. Um, now, you, Marion, you said you didn't like Grace. Is this, is this going to persist? I, Can we yeah, persuade yeah. you otherwise? To, that, the answer to that question, which is, is there one that you didn't like and then you grew to love, uh, for me is Amy, because she, I didn't like her at the start. But I wish that it was Martha, because I feel like Martha had so much potential and um, I just never got the chance to grow to love her. Yeah. Because she, her character was just written so badly and she was a little bit shit. I think I'd like to see her... I, I kind of almost like to see her come back. I mean, yeah. when she did come back, I didn't think it was very good, I have to admit. But I, I would like to see them to do her character justice and not just marry her off to Mickey. Like, that's, <laughs> I love Mickey, but those two, that's ridiculous. Like, they'd never met before and now we're supposed to believe because they're the only two black characters in the show. It does really yeah. like, you're both black, get married. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, um, oh, here's a, here's a question. Um, we'll, we'll go through this one fairly quickly, I think. Are there any companions who have made the jump from Big Finish, New Adventures, etc., to TV? Well, the answer to that is easy, no. Um, but if not, who would you like to see? So who are the favourite companions from not the TV series but other media Doctor Who? Well, look, curiously, the little prequel episode, Night of the Doctor. Oh, they do get name checks, yeah. The Eighth Doctor name checks a whole bunch of the Big Finish so audio excited. companions, which has also been pointed out. He doesn't name the ones from the BBC Eighth Doctor books. So he doesn't make canon the ones from the BBC's own production, but he does make canon the ones from somebody else's, which is... Which is both good and a shame, uh, because the answer for, for me, for the answer to this question, is largely people from the, the audio adventures and from the books. Um, I, I love a lot of them, and particularly the, the audio adventures, a lot of people have a lot of love for uh, Evelyn Smythe, who, if you don't know who she is, she's like a, a history professor in her 50s, uh, who travels with the Sixth Doctor, and it's brilliant. It's like it's like those few good moments where Perry fights back when the Doctor's bickering with her. It's like that, only it's a 55-year-old woman who's a history professor. Mm. 
and she just does not take any stick from the sixth yeah. doctor and they have this beautiful relationship and she has a lovely sort of evolution through the stories she's so she's great um i love her and also a couple of the ones that get name-checked in that episode, The Night of the Doctor, Lucy and Lucy Molly Miller particularly. Lucy Miller is amazing. Yeah, Lucy Miller is a fantastic. She's a little bit like Rose, a little bit like Ace, and that she's a streetwise, contemporary Earth woman. Yeah. But it is great because she's with the Eighth Doctor, and the Eighth Doctor's being, oh, I'm all moody and Byronic, and she's going, oh, I'll blow out your ass. Yeah. So she's great. <laughs> yeah, she's like, oh, I hate you. Let's just go for it. Let's go have a laugh. You're like, yes, yeah. let's do that. <laughs> Um, and so she's, she's brilliant. And then um, I really like Molly as well, who's the most recent one and the last one that um, Paul McGann mentions in that little short. Um, she's like a nurse from World War I and she's a brilliant character because when, when she's introduced, there's her and another nurse and the other nurse is all fawning over the doctor and thinks he's beautiful and is going to fall in love with him and you're meant to think, oh, she's going to be the companion and then she gets horribly murdered. <laughs> And actually, that might not be true. I'm just tricking you. <laughs> or it might be. Spoilers. Uh, but, and then and there's the other nurse. Molly who goes off with him on an adventure. And she's great. Like, she's, again, she's sassy, but she's really enjoying it. Like, that's the other thing I really like about Molly and Lucy is they really get into the adventure. Like, they're having a good time. And I think you've said before that you really like it on Doctor Who when people are having adventures and enjoying themselves. And then, obviously, everything goes wrong and they have to get out of peril. But when it starts off with them going, yeah, we're going to have a good time. Oh, we... Uh, something's gone wrong. It's much better. I think Doctor Who is also one of the shows where you, it helps if you assume there are adventures between the adventures. Because if they are just having horrible, gruesome, death-filled things all the time, then why on earth are they there? So hopefully they are having trips to you know the zero-G volleyball court or something in between what we're seeing. It's always nice when it starts with them coming in with a beach ball or something. I, oh, yes. Yeah, like, they're like sipping Long Island iced teas in Mallorca or something. Yeah, that's like. nice to think yeah. that they're having some fun in there because that's also the, the problem with contemporary television wants to be real, emotionally real, much more than perhaps you know, television did in the past. But the problem is a lot of time I think if uh, the companions who go through these experiences that we see in something like Doctor Who would just be in therapy for the rest of their lives... <laughs> They'd all and, have post-traumatic stress disorders. Yeah, they don't, it's, and, it's they, and they would never leave their homes. And that's not terribly interesting television. Or they so could we, have their memories wiped like Donna and then they wouldn't have any issues. Yeah, yeah, that's also no not I'm the twitching. good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what I mean about it. It's hard to find... You've got to find a middle ground where people can have adventures without having to be quite so distraught about what happens. Yeah. I, I agree with Evelyn would be the main choice. And he, he doesn't... He's not really a companion, but from the comics way back in the day, Absalom Dark, Dalek Killer. Yeah. He would be awesome to come back as... <laughs> A, a tragic one-episode character. I, I was so hoping you were going to say Frobisher. Well, well, I, was, I was thinking about Frobisher. Frobisher is a train wreck happening, waiting to happen. On no, Frobisher, for those who don't know, is of course a talking penguin. And <laughs> we we talked about this on the radio the we other did, day because Frobisher was awesome. Frobisher was a, a private eye. He was a shapeshifter who got stuck in the body of a penguin, but continues to be a private eye. Right. He's like the TARDIS. And the best part is, not only does he do that, but because he's stuck in the shape of a penguin, he starts to have penguin thoughts. So yeah. he wants to go swimming and catch fish and stuff, but also solve crimes and drink martinis. Yeah, because like, it's, all, it's all very Sam Spade kind of... He, it's one of those classic examples of something that works perfectly in comics that would be terrible. Well, they, they've they've <laughs> also done a couple of audios. audios. They've the done audios a couple of really great. great audios. Yeah, one of them is the Maltese Penguin, which I recommend you listen to. Very good. Yeah. Oh, um, we've got, we got one more question. Um, does the panel think there could ever be a non-humanoid companion... Uh, that could still ground the Doctor in similar fashion to all the previous ones. So, uh, you know, if we think of the companions as pets, canine is clearly a, a proper actual pet. But could there be, like, you know, could Alpha Centauri be a companion? 
I think definitely. Talking narratively or whether they could ever, like, it, it, not, oh, not right now, they couldn't afford to make it, but, um, like, in the comics, they'll books or audios, that would be very good. What yeah. about Madame Vastra? Could she be? But she's humanoid. Are we talking human oh, or humanoid? humanoid? Oh, like, totally I see you mean weird shapes and stuff. Yeah. But assuming, yeah. assuming that that was, yeah, assuming there was something an infinite CGI budget and magic oh, sure, rendering time, you reckon they, they, but would an audience buy it? Do you think they'd go with it? I think it? it would with the right doctor. I think it gets back to that thing again about how accessible is the doctor you're with at the time. Because I think, in a way, that was what went wrong with Liz Shaw. There's a lot of other reasons they dumped her, but they suddenly ended up with a quite adult doctor and a quite adult companion and who are the kids attaching to in there. Um, so you'd need the right mix. Like, Matt Smith could play with, a, you know, a blob of goo. The Absorbaloff, yeah. I yeah. think, would be a really good <laughs> um, companion. A nice Absorbaloff. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's often a question about what companions do after they've been companions, and I wanted to share something with you that, that Liz B., one of our previous Splendid Chaps, uh, brought in for the show we did the other day and then forgot to mention. It's, it's a book that... I've got to admit, blew my mind. Well, prepare your minds to be blown. Okay, it's called Foul Knits, F-O-W-L. It's a book which enables you to knit jumpers with birds on them, and it is written by Lala Ward, who played Romana. Who is modelling a penguin jumper there, (laughs) which she's wearing Frobisher. Now, through it, there are several photos. She, she did all the designs and, and came up with the, um, with the actual Oh, there's pictures. a swallow. Is but a swallow? there is also in here some pictures of Louise Jameson, who played Leela, wearing some uh, particularly... What's the word I'm looking for for these jumpers? <laughs> Foul. <laughs> That's harsh, but fair. Louise Jameson wearing a dodo. <laughs> Doctor Who gag! Hey! Is she Dodo wearing a Louise Jameson? But that's... Um, <laughs> that is just astonishing. This is apparently one of two, Liz? Did you say there's a volume two? What, one of only two copies? Oh, right. Beastly, Beastly Knits. Knits. Which does, is just generic animals. Does Foul Knits come before or after Beastly Knits? I think it's the So this is the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> Can I also say City of Werribee Library, if you are looking for your book, I have it here. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hang on. Seven four six point four three in the Dewey Decimal System. Ward. Never, never, never booked out. Oddly enough. Uh, <laughs> withdrawn, withdrawn from, from stock. stock. <laughs> Is there much of a history of success for people leaving? You the mean show? the actors the rather actors than the. Rather than the... Ooh, yeah, that's a hard question, uh, isn't it? Billy Piper? Yeah, well, Billy Piper was a big success before she was in Doctor Who. No, I think Billy Piper, though, she's probably the example that she really broke the... Because, yeah, there was a scene as being a bit of a, a stigma to being a, a Doctor Who girl um, mm. until Billy Piper kind of showed that, yeah, that you could make it a huge success and then move Free I guess Free Ma- yeah, I was going to say, because she didn't come in with a reputation and it's done very well since. Yeah. Yeah, Louise Jameson, I think, did quite well after she, she was in Bergerac, she was in Tenko, she was in, um, in EastEnders. I mean, she certainly had a long career after it. Uh, Liz, Liz Short did a, an ad for Ikea, I saw one. Yes. <laughs> Peter Purvis did Blue Peter for decades after. Yeah, Peter Purvis, he did okay. So it's not the kiss of death, then, to be a companion. Well, we've just named five out of how many? (laughs) Um, So I don't know that everybody's done great out of it. I mean, the modern companions are doing pretty well. Karen Gillan is now going to be in 
a big Hollywood film. She's mm. doing uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. So, in fact, it's, it's, it's very much more a step to success now than it ever was back well, in the day. Yeah, because now it means you were in the BBC's number one flagship yeah. family program. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody knows who you are. You've done genre stuff. Um, you, there's, there's toys with your face on it. Like, you, you, it's a big success story if you're in it for more than a few episodes. And even the, the doctors now, the modern doctor actors, with the exception of Christopher Eccleston, perhaps... Um, have really gone on to greater heights after doing the show. It's not the kiss of death for them anymore either, so why would it be for the companions? We still have a little bit left for the show. We're going to present our musical number, but first, can you please thank Marianne Blythe and Lucas Testro? <laughs> Remember, you can find all our previous episodes at SplendidChaps.com. We're Splendid Chaps on Facebook and Twitter. As always, we like to end with a song. Now, this is the companion show, and I am way too excited about this song. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is great. You'd forgotten what it was, hadn't you? I had to actually send you an email going, what is the song? And you told me, I said, that's great, I love that song. I said, yeah, yeah, you suggested it in the first place. Wow! <laughs> Some, this is, this is, see, this is my, in my job as co-producer of the show. Sometimes it works with John just goes, hey, maybe we should do this and then he finds out a month later that it's actually happening. (laughs) So what we want to do is Fraser Hines, who played Jamie back in the 60s, he recorded a novelty song for Doctor Who. It was called Who's Who's Doctor Doctor Who? Who? It was pretty bad. (laughs) It's rubbish. It it was written by Barry Mason and Les Reed, who famously wrote other songs including Delilah, the Tom Jones hit. So they weren't all good. Well, Fraser Hines claims that this was the only flop they ever wrote Now, at the same time, he recorded another song, which was actually not written by them, but written by an Ian Hines, presumably a relation, which was called Time Traveller. It was never released. It was included on the album that came out in 2000. It was a compilation record of early Doctor Who music called Who Is Doctor Who? I don't know if you can still get it, but it's an excellent record. It's really worth... If you can worth... pick it up, get it. It's got, it's got all the really bad stuff and then some really great stuff it's as well. It's a fascinating record. It's really worth it. And so this track, Time Traveller, was tacked on at the end, and it's great. So, to perform it... We have the wonderful, the one and only, Emma Heaney, ladies and gentlemen. So to take us out, Emma we... Heaney with Time Traveller. Until next time we meet, thank, thank you. you. It's, it's good. Keep warm. Venus and the charm of a turtle dove 
You got the bigger of Venus and the charm of a turtle dove On the records in the Scottish land Daily being killed by a cyber man But I'm a time traveler, honey, and I can't get away from your love Been everywhere on the earth and the heavens above Been everywhere on the earth and the heavens above Seen every monster from A to Z And every single one took a lump out of me But I'm a time traveler, honey, and I can't get away from your love have been listening to Splendid Chaps. We'd like to thank this episode's Splendid Chaps, Marion Bly, Lucas Testro, and Emma Heaney. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sandlin Hold Studios. You can find us at SplendidChaps.com and as Splendid Chaps on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott, and until next time we meet, thank you. It's good. Keep warm.